This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Sam Adams, the senior editor at Slate, and this is the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club. On this episode, we're talking about The Bourne Ultimatum, which closed the original trilogy of movies about a brainwashed government assassin played by Matt Damon, fighting to remember who he used to be. As he searches for traces of his former identity, Bourne uncovers a string of covert government operations, each more sinister than the last, run by people who will stop at nothing to protect their secrecy and themselves. To discuss The Bourne Ultimatum and all things Bourne, I'm joined by Dana Stevens. Dana is Slate's film critic and a co-host of the Slate Culture Gab Fest, and she's also working on a book about Buster Keaton that I cannot wait to read. Oh, thank you. Dana, welcome to the club. Thank you for having me. I May I say I invited myself to the club? I heard, I believe it was the episode with Matt Seitz on the Parallax View, and just got in touch with you saying, I want in on this action. I need to talk some paranoia. I, and you've already written very well about the series. So I have a question for you about Ultimatum. Yes. Why Ultimatum? Is it just because that's a way of talking about all three, or is it because it was the most critically and commercially successful, or why? Basically, I have not especially secret agendas behind every film that I chose, and basically because I just wanted to talk about the Waterloo sequence, among everything else. I think that's we'll you know talk about it in detail in a minute. I think, but when I saw it at the time in 2007, just really powerfully crystallized for me things about just the the condition of living in an increasingly surveilled world, and and there were things about it that are both terrifying and matter of fact at the same time. And I, I think it's the apex of the style that Paul Greengrass brought to the series with the second movie and it does as you mentioned kind of close the trilogy and and bring it full circle and also we should probably mention at this point that our position as of for this podcast is that the two movies after it do not exist yeah they're outside our canon for our purposes (laughs) we may explain that in greater detail later but we won't be talking about them except to maybe occasionally say that we don't like them. Those being Jason Bourne and the Bourne Legacy? Yes. yes. But correct. not in that order. I guess they came out in the reverse order. Yes, in, in theory. If they had come out, they would have come out <laughs> in that order. Here's where the paranoid thriller kicks in. You never saw those movies. Yes. So, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the series as a whole is that, you know, the first movie comes out in 2002. It's, I think, about nine months after 9-11, but the movie was obviously conceived and shot before then. And then as they move on into the aughts, they become, I I think, increasingly of their moment and really reflect on it in very interesting ways. And then they go right up to last year. So I wonder, I mean, I know you had a chance to to rewatch them. So do you remember sort of how you react to Born Identity in 2002 and, and if it's different from how it seems to you now? I mean, obviously, it seems more dated to me now. It seems old-fashioned technologically in ways that are almost charming with the flip phones. And at one point, this may be in supremacy, actually, but at one point when Bourne is on the run in some foreign city, he goes into an internet cafe, which is sort of charmingly old-fashioned. But what strikes me seeing it now is, in a way, what I liked about it so much at the time and that I still think sets it apart from, you know, so many action thrillers, which is that it really is a movie about character and story. And that was something that Doug Lyman really fought for in making the first movie. Apparently, the production history was very troubled. And he had only done indies before, had never done a big budget film, and had all these conditions. He insisted on going to Paris instead of making Montreal stand in for Paris, which was a great choice because one of the huge strengths of these movies, I think, is the way they use foreign locations. He went way over budget because he wanted to cut out some of the action films. The the house sequence, you know, where they go to the farmhouse, Marie Kreutz's ex-boyfriend, apparently farmhouse near Paris, sort of a downtime scene in between action scenes 
which is a really important part of the movie for character and for his relationship with Marie, the character played by Franca Patente, but doesn't really add to the action, was something that Lyman insisted on putting in. And all of that stuff really matters when you watch it now. I mean, Gilroy's scripts are so tight and so taut, but they really convey a lot of character information with every brief exchange of dialogue. And that's something that in a time when I feel like the action thriller is losing character by the year, you know, that every year there's more action and more sort of grim stoic heroes walking away from explosions and fewer people thinking about things like their identity or what killing means. Uh, I think that's something this series brings that's pretty unique. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's that's really interesting about watching even just the first three movies, and it's some of it is partly just kind of the relationship of sequels to the original, but I, I think you can also really see not the beginnings, but certainly kind of the latest shift in a relationship to franchise culture and and ongoing stories as you go through them. You know, Lyman, as you mentioned, kind of really fought for character stuff in the first movie. He basically, it's my understanding, I will admit to not having read the Robert Ludlum books that the series is based on, but my understanding at least is that in most cases, almost the entirety of the books beyond the title were thrown out. And one of the really interesting things about the first movie is that Doug Lyman is the son of Arthur Lyman, who's kind of a famous New York white shoe lawyer who also was the Senate's chief counsel in the Iran-Contra investigation in the 1980s. So what Doug Lyman did is he threw out the entire working of the Treadstone program. Actually, I'm not even sure if there is a Treadstone program in the novel by name, but he certainly threw out all those details of this program, this kind of secret government indoctrination program that, among other things, totally wipes out the person's memory of who they used to be and turns them into basically kind of a blank slate killing machine. And the workings of that program in the first movie and the covert government mechanisms for coming up are really just based on his father's investigation and his father's memoirs, because he died shortly after Lyman, I think, sold Swingers, his first film, around when it was released, but did not see any of his son's later career. Lyman also said he kind of altered the novel's politics to bring them more in line with his own, which meant a sort of substantial leftward shift. Well, and as far as the 9-11 influence, I mean, it's occurring to me, as you say, of course, the born identity would have been conceived before 9-11. That is true. But because of all those production glitches and hangups and all the stuff that Doug Lyman wanted to do that the studio didn't like, which is maybe why he didn't get to do the next two movies, Tony Gilroy was, was writing scenes and faxing them from his office in New York to wherever they were filming. So, you know, it is very possible that they were incorporating ripped from the headlines kind of stories or themes into the movie. Yeah, there's a great, um, there's a number of great articles. I know there's a really good New York Magazine profile of Lyman from around the time of the first Bourne movie, and it talks about some of the disagreements he had with producers. And there's a scene in the movie, I think it's when Jason Bourne is going into Gare de Lyon in Paris, but there's a scene where Lyman, who was a cinematographer on his first couple of films, he wasn't on this movie, but they didn't get a shot. And the producer said, you can't have the money or time to do it. So Lyman, without telling them, just kind of picked up the camera and took Matt Damon and with the crew of himself and one actor went into the train station and just shot it himself. As you mentioned, that's totally kind of indie style. That is a great, inspiring story of a filmmaker kind of breaking the rules. But it also occurred to me reading the profile that they say that the producers were furious with him. And this is, you know, a big studio production. And I think that doing something like that would get you like, into enormous trouble with the unions. It probably cost him a lot more money in fines than it would have to just, you know, actually put it on the schedule. Yeah, yeah. They must have been happy that this thing ended up making its money back because it went over budget and over schedule. And I'm sure nobody was thrilled about that. Yeah, it's, you know, interesting, as you mentioned, I mean, Lyman was kind of, I think, rather unceremoniously removed from the franchise after this movie. 
and they brought in Paul Greengrass for the second two. And, I, you know, as much as I like some things about the first movie, I do think in retrospect that feels like where the series really comes into its own. Because I agree. I think it is maybe the rare trilogy. I believe you asked this question on Twitter recently. What is the rare trilogy that gets better as it goes along? I think the ultimatum may be the best one. Although I miss Marie. Franca Patente in the first one is the best love interest in them all. And I, I never get over her tragic death in number two. But Now is the time to mention, as I do in most of these episodes, that we don't concern ourselves over much with spoilers on these things. So sorry <laughs> for Give things like that away, but you know, they're, they're spy movies. You pretty much know what's going to happen in them. Yeah, no, I think Bourne's relationship to various women, I mean, there are a ton in the franchise overall, but is one of the things that's really interesting to watch. I mean, one of the things I like about the franchise in general is they just keep bringing back characters and not just kind of antagonists and, and villains or love interests, but even minor characters. So there's all these scenes that are set in secret government offices with lots of people in ill-fitting dark suits, you know, buzzing around and whispering things in people's ears. And even those actors recirculate from film to film, and it really gives the series as a whole a kind of a feeling of ongoing reality so that even though there are different anonymous assassins and different kind of commanding bad guy spooks in every film, you have a sense that there's this ongoing government infrastructure, this the kind of bureaucracy that survives everything else. Right, which also makes it meaningful in terms of character, for example, when Pamela Landy, the character played by Joan Allen, at one point is telling the David Strathairn character, the bad guy, right, who's, who's running the, the Treadstone operation and its reincarnation, Blackbriar. She tells him, well, you can't kill the Julia Stiles character, Nikki, because she's one of us. You know, there's a sense of kind of cohesion among that CIA world so that you see that there are loyalties there to be betrayed as well. Yeah, let's, I mean, let's talk about Nikki Parsons, because actually, the way that she evolves, especially through the course of the first three movies, and I should say that the fifth movie, which again does not exist, the main reason why I maintain that the movie d- does not exist is because I really like the way that they keep her character around and find different things for her to do in the first three movies. And I really dislike what they do with her character in the fifth movie even more. I, I think if you're familiar with the term fridging, you will know <laughs> what I'm talking about. There is this shift in the third one, which is... I don't know if you can really argue it in terms of coherent character development or motivation since the second and third movies kind of take place on top of one another. There's very little time elapsed there. But in the first movie, she's this sort of yuppie functionary. She's just there to kind of do the the government's work. And then by the third one, they make her into this quasi love interest for Bourne. There's one shot. It's very well done in movie terms, it kind of breezes right past any sensible objections you might have to it. There's one cut into her, I think it's like her thumbnail rubbing on a coffee cup or something like that. And then she says to Bourne something like, well, it was always difficult with you. He said you were the first one. Why are you helping me? It was difficult for me, with you. That to me is a great illustration of how well movies can shift a character with just a well-chosen moment. Because if you go back and watch the first movie, there's no hint of that kind of relationship between the characters. It's not there, and it's clearly just they decided... We need Bourne to have some kind of warm human moments with somebody in this movie. Right. So and, and of course, that line might not mean I was in love with you before, you know, we turned you from David Webb into Jason Bourne. It could just mean I am a human being who had right. some sort of sympathy, right? One of the things I like about the first one, she's kind of almost not a human being. I mean, she is one of these really kind of officious functionaries who keeps the machinery 
running. I mean, there are more typical bad guys in the film, but the truly frightening characters for me are the ones who just keep things running. I mean, there, you have the sense of it as this machinery that turns and turns, and it, it the movies work a kind of interesting balance between having a kind of movie-satisfying individual villains and then a sense of this ongoing system that, as, as we learned, you know, after the third movie, you know, there's this huge... I think we suspected even before, but we learned for sure there's this huge national security apparatus that is surveilling or at least potentially surveilling any of us at any time. But I like that that's not the focus of the first three movies. I mean, we promised that we would not talk about the non-existent <laughs> others. But if I have any big philosophical statement to make about the Bourne trilogy in the context of this paranoid thriller long conversation you've been having, it's that the 21st century flip of the paranoid thriller just does something so interesting with, for example, if you take the parallax view as an example of the classic post-Watergate paranoid thriller, right? It's a question of this smart guy, right? Warren Beatty, who knows what's going on, who's going to figure out this vast, complex, impossible to understand superstructure of, of control. In the Bourne movies, in a way, that is presumed from the beginning, right? It's not a slow discovery of, oh, my God, it goes all the way to the top. It's like we begin with the knowledge that there is this evil machine controlling this man's mind from the moment he first appears in the ocean at the beginning of the first movie. And what it's really about is finding out about his own past and about himself. So, I mean, in a way, it's, well, the Born Identity is the perfect title for the first one because they are about explorations of Born himself and not necessarily what made him this way. And I, and I like that because yeah. we've seen the other so many, many times. Yeah, I mean, in the, the Parallax View episode, you mentioned, I mean, Matt cites, I'm a more flexible definition kind of person, but Matt is was very, kind of very insistent on the true paranoid thriller is one where you know, nobody really finds out what's going on at the end. And these are movies where, in a sense, kind of everybody knows what's going on or finding out what's going on. You can tell people and they won't care. It's but almost, that's very true to the 21st century, yeah. right? I mean, and more and more so as we get further and further into it. But, you know, this idea that there's a kind of innocent discovering, you know, turning over a rock and finding this world of evil, that would that would be wrong now. That would be historically inaccurate and kind of spiritually uninteresting at this moment in history. Right. You know, I think you can also draw a line to this movie from the conversation we had with Isaac Butler about the conversation in Enemy of the State and the jump between those two movies as far as surveillance goes. And it's one from where surveillance is this kind of creepy thing, you know, perpetrated by rogue individuals to this thing that the you know government is doing to everybody all the time, but people don't know about it or kind of shocked to realize is going on. Then by the time you get to Ultimatum, it's kind of almost assumed, you know, especially in the scenes that are set in the UK where CCTV is just kind of a ubiquitous fact of life. A Waterloo. Point. OK, we've arrived at Waterloo. Yes. Let's talk about the Waterloo station scene because it is really the set piece. It's sort of the, the jewel in the crown of the Bourne Ultimatum, even though it happens in the first third of the movie. It's weird. I had completely forgotten that because it, in retrospect, it had kind of become the climax in my mind, which is, I guess, not to slight some of the other sequences in the movie, but it feels like, at least thematically, kind of this great summation of everything that this series has come to be about at that point. And it was, yeah, it was hard for me to remember that it was, you know, the sequence is over and I kind of just checked the, you know, the timer on my Blu-ray player and it's like 30 minutes into the movie. Like, what, are the, what do you do for an encore after that? Yeah. So it's this in, incredible sequence. I'll, I'll just kind of describe it. There's a, a Guardian journalist played by Patty Considine who is let into, has a, has a meeting with the source and learns about this Blackbriar program, which is kind of the replacement for 
Treadstone. And the NSA intercepts him like an idiot saying on a cell phone to his editor, hey, I heard about this Blackbriar thing. Which to me raised the question, don't they have to kill his editor too? <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. How, how deep does this thing go? There's newsroom <laughs> carnage everywhere. So Bourne finds out about this as well and arranges a meet with him in Waterloo Station, which is, I think, the busiest train station in London, probably one of the busiest train stations in the world, you know, reasoning that it's a public place and it's safe. And what happens is the uh, the journalist who is, I think, a little bit um, credulous for someone who is deep enough into national security reporting to have a source who would tell him about Blackbriar in the first place, just really doesn't get what's going on and has to just kind of take cell phone commands from Jason Bourne. Who slips a burner phone into his pocket at, at the moment that they first cross paths in Waterloo, and that's really beautifully orchestrated, too. I'm going to walk by you. I want you to move along the far wall to your left in four, three, two, one, stand up. That's it. Gone. Where the hell is he? We cannot afford to lose this guy, people. All right, that line you're on is good. Stay on that line. Stay on that line. Oh, the bit man. I think he's one of them. The garbage man? Negative. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, he's reaching for something. Oh, God, Stay he's got a gun. He's got a gun. Stay on the line. He's got a gun. Do not deviate. Okay, there here he, he is. goes, here he goes. Tell Grab Team A, go. He's still talking with somebody. He's getting instructions. Jimmy, get me the conversation. Lock the box. Lock the box. Moving Grab Team C. Hurry, Ross. We've got to move. Okay. Yes, and there's this amazing moment where Patty Gonsadine kind of goes out onto the street and Bourne realizes that he's about to be snatched off the street, basically rendered. But he kind of gambles that the government doesn't know what Patty Considine looks like yet at that point. So Bourne kind of maneuvers him to just stand behind some random guy in a hoodie who happens to be talking on a cell phone. And then that guy gets snatched off into a van and taken away and we never see him again. And the matter of factness of just that someone gets snatched off a street in London in broad daylight. And that's the last, you know, like what happens to that person later on? He needs a trilogy. (laughs) But I mean, that to me was really sobering at the time. As is, spoiler, again, the, the kind of climax of the sequence where after disobeying directions from our hero, which, of course, you never want to do in an action movie, Patty Considine gets assassinated by the government in the middle of one right. station. Which is shocking, like on a parallax view level of shocking that that happens, because, I mean, even even if you just know Patty Considine is a character actor from different movies, the moment he appears on the scene, there's almost this sense of relief. There's something so kind of kindly and right, just upstanding about Patty Considine. And you think, ah, he's a reporter. He's going to be in, you know, in collusion. He's going to uncover it all. And within... 15 minutes of his introduction as a character, he's dead on the floor of the train station. Yes. So, I mean, what do you what do you make of the sequence? I mean, well, for one thing, it, I think it's just a triumph of the oft-condemned Paul Greengrassian style of, of rapid editing, which has I, I've complained about in certain movies, too. It's that Iraq war movie he made, The Green Room, is that yeah, the yeah. Green Zone? Yeah. Uh, was one, for example, in which that choppy, shaky, handheld cam style just really got annoying to me. And it started to be used basically, and it's just so widely imitated. And now every boardroom meeting has to be shot as if some journalist frightened for for his life is holding the camera. But in that Waterloo sequence, it works perfectly. It's I believe that style of editing, the film scholar David Boardwell has called it intensive continuity. You know, right. So it's more than just handheld camera. It has to do with the length of shots. I think the average length of the shot in both of the Paul Greengrass 
Bourne movies is something like 1.9 seconds. You know, so every shot has to convey a lot of information. And the Waterloo setting is just sort of perfect for that style of filmmaking, right? Because you need to sort of know at every moment the things that Bourne knows, the things that he knows because of his presumably super spy training, where each camera is, what it can see, at what moments they can speak and exchange information without being surveyed. And of course, we're also cutting back and forth to the control room yeah. where um, where the David Strathairn character is calling the shots and telling everybody what to do. And so the tension in that scene is just immeasurably upped by the fact that the camera is in constant motion and cutting so quickly. Yeah. I mean, we started this podcast series talking about Douglas Hussutter's famous interview, The the Paranoid Style in American Politics. And he was talking about a rhetorical style. I feel like in this movie, you know, in the the two movies that Paul Greengrass did in the trilogy and the the third one that doesn't exist, I think we really get the equivalent of that in kind of the visual paranoid style. This kind of intensely, as you mentioned, this kind of shaky handheld camera with this really intense editing that still nonetheless somehow hangs together and is spatially coherent and you don't get, you know, lost as to where you are. You kind of know in Waterloo, you know where the exits are, you know where the cameras are and where the assassins are coming from and and stuff like that. It's this incredible visual analog for the sense of just never knowing where to look, never knowing who might be following you, that danger can come from any angle that you never know, you know, when you're being watched, even if there are no people around you when you're on camera, when, you know, an ATM across the street might be capturing your image and and stuff like that. And, and I, I just think it's incredibly effective at putting you in that really heightened, paranoid mindset. Right. It puts you where Patty Considine is, basically, right? You've got only Jason Bourne's voice to kind of guide you through this welter of cameras and surveillance and other pedestrians and how to maneuver through it. And it, I mean, it has, as you mentioned, kind of become this very influential, very imitated style. And I feel a little bit about it, like Pauline Kael said about Frank Capra, which is that no one else can do what he does. And if anyone else should learn, kill him. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's the imitations of it are so bad often and so incoherent. And it's really just what if we bang the camera around a lot and cut really quickly? And when it particularly bothers me is, is in non-suspense scenes. It just drives me crazy. The Greengrass himself has been guilty of this, where a boardroom meeting is filmed in exactly the same way as some sort of shootout would be. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't lend itself to every story, but in these movies and in a movie like Captain Phillips, I think it does really have this incredible subjective anxiety to it's it. It's probably worth mentioning, too, since we're talking about the cinematography and craft, that uh, Christopher Rouse was the cinematographer and he works with Greengrass a lot. He's sort of the Greengrass guy, you know, for all of these handheld and multiple camera shots, which is something else that makes Waterloo Station work, is that we're seeing it from so many different angles at once. So it kind of creates this prismatic space. You know, there's sort of kind of CIA black helicopter ideas. You know, the idea that, the you know, the government can murder somebody in cold blood in the middle of a train station. And that's kind of it. I mean, we're very tethered to Jason Bourne and then a couple of other of his antagonists. But we don't really get the POV of anybody kind of outside this sprawling underground network of spies and, and spy masters. Yeah, that was why, I mean, my joke about the editor was a joke, but it's kind of true in real life, right? I mean, if a national security reporter was gunned down in public, the investigation would go to the newspaper and say, what was he investigating? What was he talking about? Yeah, and in in the movie, I mean, the, the trilogy kind of climaxes with this decision for the first time in the series to kind of not, um, I guess he doesn't kill Brian Cox in, in the second one. He just kind of prompts him to to suicide. But it's the first movie where the bad guy doesn't die at the end and just goes to jail, which is almost weirdly radical in, an, in a kind of contemporary action movie because it's no longer considered 
satisfying closure to just have the bad guys go to jail because we you know we see in real life so many times that people get arrested and tried and then get off <laughs> well that kind of goes back to my you know big idea from earlier about how this is different from you know sort of your grandfather's paranoid thriller which is that it is about Bourne kind of discovering his own complicity and guilt and one of the things that happens at the end of ultimatum is that he sits down with albert finney who was kind of the original you know frankenstein who made this monster and starts to realize wait i volunteered for this you know and it was something that I, in some way, chose to do. And so it makes sense that he would kill fewer and fewer people as the series goes on because he's morally learning. You know, he's sort of arriving at a place where he realizes in order for this not to go on, I have to stop perpetuating it as well. Yeah, I mean, there is a certain amount of repetition that sets in in the later movies. I mean, the first one kind of brings him towards the realization that before he got shot and ended up in the water, he kind of botched this assassination attempt on this, I guess he's like a sort of African dictator from some unnamed nation because his kids happened to be aboard the yacht with him. And so you see that there is this kind of vestigial conscience working its way through, and that gets repeated in the second and third movies in different ways. But I do wonder about what we make of this revelation in the third movie, because the trilogy has been kind of premised on the idea that this is something that's been done to Jason Bourne, that he's had his former identity taken away from him, and he is struggling to get it back. And I I'm not really sure what to do exactly with the decision in the third movie to make it something that he signed up for in the first place. I mean, maybe he's no longer the person who did that because that person's been wiped out, too. But I, I kind of feel like it screws things up in some very fundamental way to make it something that David Webb, in fact, signed up for this in the first place. Well, it screws things up, but it also, I mean, to go back to Matt Sice's idea that, you know, the ideal paranoid thriller is the one in which we don't learn everything. I mean, we don't learn who David Webb was or why he did these things. Maybe we do in the non-existent Jason Bourne, which I haven't seen, but we don't get the backstory of what drove him to become that. And I don't know, I think that makes it very powerful because at that point... We're very sympathetic with Jason Bourne, right? We want him to be good. We want him to be innocent. We want him to be acted upon only by external forces. And so the revelation, the slow revelation of his complicity, I think, is is one of the more powerful things about the series. And, you know, whether he volunteered or not, you still care about him at the end. I mean, the end of The Bourne Ultimatum, I think, is the best ending of all three of these movies. It's like a setup for a serial that you don't almost want to continue. You know, that moment where he takes the deep dive into the water, you see him sort of floating as we hear the voiceover summation of what's happening to all the bad guys. And then you just see Julia Stiles give a slight little smile as she hears on the news that he hasn't been found yet. And slowly he swims away. I mean, that just to me, that reminded me of a cliffhanger serial from the olden days. You know, it's just beautiful. Right. And you really realize kind of watching all three of them, because I initially had not watched them all since they came out, you know, being separated by several years, you know, five between the the first movie and the trilogy and and the third rewatching them all together. I mean, you realize how much of a conscientious effort is being made in ultimatum to bring things full circle to identity. I mean, the last shot of the trilogy is essentially the first shot of the trilogy, which is, you know, Matt Damon floating in water. And there's a not especially subtle birth metaphor going on there, especially given that the character's surname is Born. But it then puts this twist on it where he's kind of floating prone in the water. And then he starts 
breaststroking. Right. Yeah. It's like there are bookend shots for the beginning end of the trilogy, which is really nice. But in the first bookend, right, he's passively floating, awaiting either death or, or rescue. And then he kind of has his agency at the end, which I think speaks to this idea that he's owned up to his own moral past. You know, who knows where he's going to go next? I mean, presumably he doesn't want to keep on doing super spy stuff. He's going to go maybe go back to Goa and open a cafe or something like that. But, you know, he's making his own life at the end. Yeah. You know, again, I mean, there may be, if you kind of sit and think about it, something a little politically dodgy about that, because if David Webb signed up for this voluntarily, you know, then he is, no matter what has since been done to him, I mean, he has killed a lot of people, including, you know, a number of completely innocent people who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time along the course of the series. And for him to kind of get his deliverance by just turning in or killing the people who did that to him and then just swimming off to live his life somewhere else is a little there's a little have your cake and eat it too about so you're that. you're still waiting for the born indictment yeah, yeah or the the born surrender or something <laughs> like that i feel like he you know it's, it's it's cheating a little bit but um one of the things i realized rewatching the second and third movie so close together that i completely slipped by me the first time i saw ultimatum was that they do this really weird and interesting thing where basically the first hour, maybe hour and 20 minutes of ultimatum is set between the second to last and the last scenes of supremacy yes, in the movie before it. let's talk about that because I had already seen all three of these movies and I think even reviewed them, at least reviewed the last two, and I never understood this. So explain this to our listeners. How do they wedge all of movie three into a small part of movie two? Well, the, the movies, as I kind of alluded to before, have kind of a checkered production history. You know, you had Lyman kind of indulging these producer-enraging tactics on the first one and getting kicked off the series as a result. Then you have an increasingly souring relationship between Paul Greengrass and the screenwriter Tony Gilroy on the second movie. And then my understanding is for the third movie, Gilroy agreed to come back and write another movie in the trilogy, but only on the condition that Greengrass not be allowed to speak to him directly. And so what happened is Gilroy did a draft for the third movie, and I came up with this idea to kind of sandwich a bunch of it in, in between the last two scenes of the previous movie. And then he left. And there are, I think, at least two other credited screenwriters on that. And then Gilroy came back without Greengrass to you know, write and direct the fourth movie in the series, The Born Legacy. And then he left again, and then Greengrass came back for the fifth one and wrote the script for that movie so with, now with Damon. They yeah. just won't be in the same room with each other Yes, anymore. exactly. <laughs> they don't exist in the same dimension anymore. So you have this really interesting idea where the last two scenes of Supremacy are we kind of leave Jason Bourne being chased by the authorities in, I think it's Moscow, and then he just disappears into the night. And then there's an unspecified jump forward and um, Joan Allen's character, Pamela Landy, gets a call from Bourne in New York and they kind of discuss his fate and she tells him that he's David Webb, tells him when he was born, you know, gives a hint that she's not really going to come after him too hard. And Damon's angles in that sequence have kind of been you know, sort of shallow focus things where you can't really see where I am. And then there's this line where he says, well, you know, get some sleep, Pam, you look tired. And then you see that he is the next building over in New York, watching her through the window. And she quickly swivels her head to look out the window and Jason Bourne is gone again. And then there's a big kind of wah, wah from the screen from on the soundtrack. And, and then Moby starts his, his theme song that ends all three movies. Can I just add that I absolutely love that there's the same song at the end of all three movies. It makes it like a TV show theme or something. It's yeah, great. it's really great. It's kind of a terrible but great song called Extreme Ways by Moby. Yeah, it's one of those songs that like I love in that context and I have no desire to listen to in any other circumstances. 
David Webb. That's your real name. You were born 4-1571 in Nixon, Missouri. Why don't you come in and we'll talk about it? Born? Get some rest, Pam. You look tired. So then the third movie kind of picks up, and this is a little what I was talking about with franchise culture before, where there's just less and less kind of setup and exposition and backstory in the, from movie to movie. So the third one just picks up, you know, I think the first shot is like feet running down the street or something like that. So it picks up literally in the middle of a chase, that kind of penultimate scene from the previous movie, and then starts from Moscow and you may not even realize it until it's about an hour and 20 minutes into the movie and you have that exact same phone call between Bourne and Landy in New York and the first hour of the movie is how Jason Bourne got from Moscow to New York which is not really a question that it's like how the armies move on Game of Thrones like nobody cares (laughs) they just that's the magic of movies people are, are in one scene and then you cut to the next scene and they're somewhere else well and in a huge part of I think the modern thriller is that you can't ask those questions too assiduous or you just you will not be able to get into the spirit. I mean, for that matter, how did he get into David Strathairn's office, which we can only imagine how much security it would take to get in there. Remember the scene where he calls yes. him and says, I know you're not here because I'm here. Yes. That would be a good backstory to know how without any disguise, which Jason Bourne strangely never seems to wear, even though the girls he's running around with are always cutting their hair and dyeing it to look different. Right. Yeah. Yet the entire CIA is after him and he never puts on a disguise. So, yeah, if you're going to start shooting plot holes in the Bourne movies, we'll be here all day. I mean, the, the assassins in the movie is kind of have this signature look. They're very kind of lean and muscled and they have this very close cropped hair and it's easy to mistake. They're almost identical figures that go after Bourne in the second and third movies. I mean, they're different characters and they're played by different actors, but they look so similar that there's this weird sense of deja vu and they they almost have the same death scenes where they both ram their SUVs into bridge pilings and then are crushed up against the wheel and Bourne has the opportunity to kill them and then he doesn't. The circularity and the kind of repetition between the second and third movies almost starts to seem like kind of just a lack of ideas at a certain point. Like they do it so much. It's like watching back-to-back Ozu movies or something like that where it's just like, wait, is this not the movie I just watched? Yeah, that, there is a little bit of a deja vu with that. I, in general, I think the big action scenes and the car chases are the weakest parts of these movies, which goes back to what I was saying earlier about you know, them really being movies about character and identity. An exception to that, though, well, the Waterloo scene is definitely an exception to that. And also in Ultimatum, I think the wonderful Tangier chase sequence, which we haven't talked about at all, where he's running across the rooftops of Tangiers, again, using the location incredibly well, really makes you want to travel to Morocco just to see that town and jumping in and out of various apartments as the natives watch him race by. That scene is just beautifully done, I thought. A friend of mine, I think, asked on Twitter recently, kind of, what are the great 21st century action sequences? You know, my initial response was having just watched the movies like, duh, the Bourne films. And then I kind of thought, well, you know, if an action sequence involves moving from place to place or cars or things blowing up or something like that. And it actually was was harder than to pick something out from the Bourne series because so many of the great fights in these movies are hand to hand, even in the first one. And then when Greengrass starts shooting them in his style in, in the second and third, I mean, those are really electrifying. I mean, they're close in and brutal and carefully choreographed and yet they also have this slightly campy edge to them where Bourne is using you know things like 
a rolled up magazine or a book to fight. The other yeah, they're person. funny. Yeah, there's yeah. a comic element to a lot of those foot chases, and and I really like that. That it's not comic in the sense that the stakes seem any lower, but just that it's so crazy and over the top. The things that he can do, and you know, the sort of poker face with which he does these crazy things, is is just sometimes funny. Yeah, I mean, he's really he's a very very kind of stripped down character, just in kind of psychological character terms. I mean, he is this person who's just been bred and. and engineered to be kind of a killing machine. And as a result, I mean, he's this existential character who just is pure action and really goes into movement, you think, before he even has a chance to think about what he's doing. I mean, and certainly before we have an opportunity to figure it out. And one of the ways that the movies work is Bourne starts doing something curious, like he, you know, breaks into this assassin's house and finds that he's not home. So then he puts something in the toaster and you're like, what is he, what is he doing with the toaster? Like, what does this have to do with anything? And it turns out that he's using the, the toaster and I think the gas from the stove as to kind of makeshift time bomb or something like that. But there's this real resourcefulness to him where just anything that is within arm's reach or within his orbit can become some sort of a weapon or a spy trick or something like that. You know, one of the things that strikes me, especially watching these movies all in a bunch and and watching them kind of in the midst of seeing other commercial kind of action thrillers that are are coming out this season, you know, maybe like Atomic Blonde, which is hugely indebted to the Bourne series. And I think markedly, apologies for saying this because I know a lot of people like it, but I think markedly inferior when you watch them back to back. It's really striking to me how these movies are reflecting this kind of increasingly paranoid post 9-11 climate that they never succumb to wrote xenophobia. I mean, they're very global in the James Bond sense. I mean, we move between countries and nationalities of characters very fluidly, but it always kind of comes back to the idea that the principal enemy is the U.S., that we're kind of our own worst enemy and that no one can challenge us on that front. Yeah, I think the third movie really seals the deal on that, you know, as the Treadstone operation starts to grow, or rather, I guess the Treadstone operation is shut down at the end of Supremacy, right, but then secretly replaced by the Black Briar. Yeah. There's kind of this sense that, yeah, there's an expanding deep state, to use the term we're all now throwing around, and even as uh, individual actors are captured or killed, there's no shutting down the deep state. Right. And there's a great moment in the third one where I think it's David Strathairn is, is talking to Albert Finney. He says, well, you remember why we put Pam Landy there in the first place, Joan Allen's character. You know, we think she's, oh, she did such a good job tracking Bourne in the second one. And she's been promoted and like, you know, good for her. And then she's just been, to a certain extent, kind of maneuvered to a point in the management structure where she can conceivably has enough responsibility to take the fall if something like this, one of these programs comes to light. Right. And actually, one of the stronger dramatic scenes in Ultimatum doesn't involve Bourne at all. It's the moment when Pamela Landy confronts, I can't remember the David Strathern character's name, Noah. Noah, Noah Vosen. Noah yeah. Vosen about yeah. the existence of Black Briar, which had been hidden from her, which, you know, obviously given her place in the organization is kind of a diss. Yes. And it does have this, you know, kind of sweetly naive moment where Bourne kind of turns in you know, Avosa and Albert Finney's character and it, and they're on the news being led away and it's like, oh, well, that's all good. You know, the good guys won and we found out what happens. And But the movies up to that point, even were there no more, really don't support that optimistic reading. And, and I feel like, you know, it's a thing that a lot of Hollywood movies are going to have to do now, which is kind of provide a more conventionally satisfying sort of, of closure where the good guys win, but then also suggest on some level, like that's really not going to be 
enough. Yeah, the monster will just grow another head. I mean, which is proven by the fact even that they, there are more operatives out there, right? He was just the first generation prototype of whatever you want to call it, the amnesiac killing machine. And the guy who, who's about to shoot him on the rooftop at the end before he takes that big dive is presumably, right, it's implied that he's the next generation, that there's more of them out there. Right. I mean, they even repeat the dialogue, but Damon has kind of taken the, the place of Clive Owen's character in the first place, who is, you know, dying and says, you know, look what they make you give. You know, Jason Bourne is able to find a way out of that through effectively killing himself off and and being, sounds like a terrible pun, but it's just the word reborn. So, And then so we know that kind of the conspiracy can't end because it's a successful franchise and they have to keep going on. And Matt Damon was very adamant in 2007 that he was done and he was not going to do any more movies and he wasn't interested and he was too old. And they kind of started the franchise with Jeremy Renner again and that didn't work. And then lo and behold, you know, 10 years later, all of a sudden, Matt Damon is not too old. Look and he, what they make you give, yes. Matt. Yes. <laughs> he, he's reminded that he likes money um, and he wants to keep being a movie star. And then but it, see, this is why I'm glad we're ignoring the existence of the next two, because I really do think that the Bourne trilogy works as this kind of old-fashioned, cohesive trilogy where each movie makes you want to see the next movie, answers some questions that were raised in the previous movie, and that it all kind of closes off in a satisfying way that makes you think that the character has a future life, but that you don't have to necessarily be a part of it. And you know, I mean, forget about Hollywood ever being satisfied with that again, right? If you feel that good at the end of a trilogy, they're going to give you more whether you asked for it or not. You know, we as audiences kind of never get closure now anyway. And you have things now like with the Will and Grace revival where they came to what they felt was the satisfying ending 10 years ago and now they want to revive it. And it's like, oh, and they just decided like, oh, that ending never happened. Like, we're not even going to write it out. That episode doesn't exist. Yeah, Delete it so, from your mental hard So they're drive. searching for the Born reboot star right now. Some dewy, young Australian man is being copped out for this character. <laughs> yes, it's some, some dewy, young Australian man who will be completely indistinguishable from your various Hemsworths and Worthingtons and, and whatnot. Well, I look forward to finding out whoever this next Jason Bourne may be. And uh, thank you, Dana, for coming on and talking oh, about thanks. this with us. It was a pleasure. This has been the Slate Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club on The Bourne Ultimatum. You can watch the movie, well, pretty much everywhere. It's probably on TV right now. Read more about the movie and join our Facebook group to discuss the film at slate.com slash thrillers. Our next episode, coming in two weeks, will be on Jordan Peele's Get Out with my guest, Kay Austin Collins of The Ringer. The series is produced by Chow Tu. Slate Plus's editorial director is Gabriel Roth, and I'm Sam Adams. See you next time. <laughs>